as we get closer to the end of what is marked on the calendar as 2002, we are about to enter into our celebrations. And so this is the first of the evening's Dharma talks. And what I thought I wanted to reflect on this evening is on compassion. So the sort of the title for the talk is, well, kind of made it up just now. It's a, I want to be Kuan Yin. <laughs> But first, before I start talking about Kuan Yin, I just want to say that uh, earlier today I was reflecting on how really beautiful it is that we're all sitting here together during this evening's celebration that's going on in many places in North America. Uh, People will be celebrating in a very different way than you are this evening. And really how touched I am that your decision was to sit in the silence and to be still. It really is the most precious thing we can do, is to sit quietly through the new year as we see the ending and welcome the beginning of the next year, and really reflect on our own place, our own way of being, in the world. Excuse me a minute. Okay, uh, maybe somebody can go tell him. So I just wanted to acknowledge that for us, that it's, you know, particularly at this time of uh, when we really can't forget the fragility of things that are happening on our planet right now. Uh, ever since last year's tragedy in September 11th, we, we can't forget. I don't think any of us can in quite the way we could before because uh, the pot- impending uh, uh, terror that is so close to us now. So we sit together, we sit in silence, and we reflect on how each one of us might be able to make a difference in the world. And I believe and have faith that the way to make the most difference in the world is to look at my own mind, to look at the seeds that I'm planting within my own mind and what's taking root there, so that that whatever is taking root doesn't come into fruition in a way that causes more harm. What I want to take root is the seeds are the seeds of compassion and love and wisdom. And I think the only way for those to take root is for me to pay attention to what's really happening in my own mind. Every moment. And that's really what we're cultivating here, is that ability to be attentive to what is being planted and what is taking root, what is growing in every moment, so that we can bring some wisdom and compassion to that. So we have the symbol of Kuan Yin, the feminine bodhisattva of compassion. 
There's many different kinds of images of Kuan Yin. Uh, my understanding is there's a standing Kuan Yin in the back of the room. Bodhisattva, the word Bodhisattva means, uh, Bodhi means awake or awakening, and Satsa means being. So a being who is dedicated to becoming awake or to become a Buddha. And in this case of Kuan Yin, I understand that this is a celestial being, you know, the goddess, the goddess of compassion, which we can look at and be inspired by, and can, she can reflect back to us a quality of our own nature, a quality of, wh- of who we are, what's in our own heart, what's in our own mind. There's one Kuan Yin that has a thousand hands. It's also Avalokiteshwar, the Bodhisattva of compassion, the male uh, uh, configuration of compassion. But the Kuan Yin, I'm going to talk about the feminine, the Kuan Yin. The Kuan Yin who has a thousand hands, and on each hand is an eye. So if you can imagine that image of the thousand arms, thousand hands going out with eyes, And it really is a symbol of touching the world, touching the whole world, and seeing the whole world, being awake to the whole world and what is happening, not going to sleep. So it's really a symbol to us, that Kuan Yin with a thousand arms with the eyes, not to go to sleep. See if we can keep our heart open, see if we can keep our mind awake, to see, to to uh, uh, pay attention, not closed down, not cut off, to see what can be revealed, to see what can be understood. Sometimes she's called a she who hears the cries of the world. And when we, we either see an image of Kuan Yin or we hear about Kuan Yin, Something is touched in us, something's touched within our own heart. And we may feel that I want to be Kuan Yin. I want to know that in my own heart. I want to be able to open my heart to such an extent that I can touch the whole world, be touched by the whole world. And sometimes when we sit, we can have moments, we can have some extended moments where we can really feel our inner Kuan Yin. It may be times that have happened on this retreat, maybe other times that you can remember in your life where you were either walking somewhere in nature or sitting somewhere quietly, and your mind and your heart opened. And you could feel, you could feel in a way that was extraordinary, you could feel something that you hadn't ever felt before. It may have happened last year when the towers were hit, and that had a way of kind of breaking open something for us that we couldn't go to sleep, we couldn't stay asleep. And so there are times when something cracks, something opens, and we can feel, we can, we can touch that compassion, that, that inner Kuan Yin. We can touch the pain of the world but yet other times we, we feel 
the constriction of our small self. We feel the pulling in and the contraction of the me, of the I, that, that, so that way that the sense of me can feel so bound up, so narrow, so tight, so constricted, so cut off from everything. And when we're aware of this, as we are while we're sitting in meditation, and these, this kind of experience arises where we say, yeah, here I am, this is me, this is how I know myself, we can actually be aware, have some sense of how these forces of greed, these forces of hatred, these forces of delusion, how it moves through and how it feels. And we can feel the, the pain of those forces at times. And feeling that can give us some sense of urgency to be free, to find a way to be free of these very painful and harmful patterns of mind that that flow through us at times. And when we see this and we experience ourselves in this way, it's very easy to reject ourselves at those times, to get into a state of uh, sometimes self-hatred, self-rejection, condemnation, making ourselves wrong, making ourselves bad, ways we, 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 we can really then feel more bound up and more constricted because we don't actually see what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. And then when we think about Kuan Yin, we can think, not me, not in this life, not in any life. Even if I had a thousand lives, I'm so, so far away. I'm so bound up. There's so much of me here. And we can feel this huge gap in who we are and the ideal of what we can imagine our potential is. Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen master, who he wrote in his book Zen Mind and Beginner's Mind, another take on this Kuan Yin with a thousand arms, a thousand hands. And he said that Kuan Yin has a thousand hands, but if you focus on one hand, you'll lose 999 hands. And this is one of those Zen koans, right? So what does he mean by that? He means that we cannot force something on ourselves. We can't just think about one aspect of ourselves. We can't think about just something that's wrong with us or try to make ourselves into something that we're not. If we just focus on one thing, we miss all that we are. We miss our innate and our true capacity of being. It means that we are trying to squeeze ourselves, push ourselves into some kind of box, into some kind of shape, into some kind of form of being. We get into pushing and manipulating and controlling and, and, you know, trying to, you know, well, you're supposed to be this and you're supposed to be that and how come you're not more compassionate and how come you're not Kuan Yin right now and how come you can't open your heart and why do you give yourself such a hard time? And we can get really caught up in the whole kind of like, what's wrong with you? You know that you're more than you are and why can't you be that right now? 
You know, we don't actually see what we're doing. We don't see that it's the very pattern of mind, it's the very judgment itself that is constricting us, that is forcing us, pushing us into that small sense of ourselves. We can't just let ourselves be. Just let ourselves be. Suzuki Roshi says, true practice is to know that you are already compassionate. You're already open and still without trying. When you try to do something, you lose it. So our practice really is one of letting go. And what are we letting go of? We're letting go of that which is false, that which is not true, that which is not true about us. And so part of our discernment and part of our awareness is to be able to pay attention to what's true and what's not true. And if we have this inner voice, this inner dialogue that's telling us how wrong we are and how bad we are and who we should be and what we should be doing, and there's something not very true about that. There's not something very helpful about that. And so our practice is starting to uncover some of these layers of what's false. How we construct a false idea of who we are so that we can come into the truth of our being. Being a Dharma teacher makes this kind of letting go difficult at times. Because as a Dharma teacher, there's often a lot of expectations and a lot of pressures and uh, projections. And a lot of that gets internalized as well. Like, for, uh, for example, I'm somehow supposed to meet people's expectations and projections. And so, so part of my past, part of my process has been to try to sort out what is expectation and idealized expectation and projection and what's just an expression of my true being and what's really acceptable at the level of that truth even as a dharma teacher and even as i say even as a dharma teacher what would matter more than just being able to express the bare truth of being and so it's so important to really for me to really keep sorting through what's true and what's false, what's real and what's not real. Sixteen years ago, I went to India for the first time. Some of you know this, my long uh, karmic relationship with India and going back every year for 15 years and uh, in the winter and, and staying two or three months and teaching in Bodhgaya. Uh, where the Buddha was enlightened uh, with Christopher Titmus, And the first time I went to India, I went as an Dharma teacher in 1987. And that was very interesting. <laughs> because going to India, the first time particularly, because I had never been to an uh, uh, undeveloped country that, like that, and I was totally ripped apart. Like Mother, Mother India, for those of you who haven't been there and for those of you who have, 
it is ruthless. Mother in India is ruthless. So any place that there is any kind of holding, any kind of false identity, Mother India will rip it away from you. So the first time I went, this was my experience. And I was supposed to be in this role of Dharma teacher. India bombards the sense doors on every level, from the most pleasurable to the most painful. I was in Bodhgaya, and Bodhgaya is the poorest state in India. And I had never encountered so much suffering in my whole life. And I still haven't, more than I've ever experienced in Bodhgaya. And I really didn't know whether my heart could bear it. I didn't know whether I could bear the experiences that I was having, particularly in this first year. I mean, as the years went by, I did cultivate more and more ways of dealing with what I was experiencing. But the beggar children, there's so many beggars and and people living on the edge of poverty, and the beggar children would come in to beg for food during the day. And uh, what I learned was that they were actually working for um, uh, some man who would collect all the money that these beggar children would, would collect and then give them a pittance of bread or a pittance of something to eat at the end of the day. So they were essentially slaves, but none of the tourists really, hardly any of the tourists really knew that. It was only by going back to Bodhgaya so many times I started to learn about some of the very awful and corrupt things that were happening there. There would be lines of beggars on the days that the rich Thai people would come through, the, the Thai pilgrimage, the pilgrims, and they would be lined up for half a mile, and the Thai pil- pilgrims would come by and maybe give them something in their bowls, or t- sometimes they might give them a blanket or something that they could really, that was really useful for them. There are corpses that are carried through the villages on, on uh, uh, platforms when somebody dies, so the corpses go down the streets about every other day. With the, with, the, with the horns and the chanting and the singing. You know, and I had never really seen a corpse before I went to India. And sick people and deformed people and people without much clothes and little children carrying little babies around the streets that are naked. And on and on and on. At our retreat where we taught, there would be usually be blaring loudspeakers because the Indian people love to have the music going many time, most of the time during the day, particularly during festivals. And so when we would be sitting in meditation, it wouldn't be silent. <laughs> There'd be lots of things going on, particularly the blaring loudspeakers, the Hindi film music going on through the retreats. And one time during, well, there was usually lots of pujas going on while we were doing our retreat. And a lot of Tibetans and Bhutanese people were going through the village. And across the street from the Thai temple, they, one uh, uh, Tibetan set up a little tiny little tent, and he was selling uh, tickets for a bus on some pilgrimage around the holy sites where the Buddha uh, lived. And he put on a little he put on a tape, and it was in Tibetan, but it was loud. And so while we were sitting in meditation for about a week, this tape would just go on and on and on in Tibetan, and it sounded something like this. Hello, hello, hello. Tibet. Hello, 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 hello. And it would just... (laughs) 
and then it then it would stop, and then it go, and then you go, ee, you did all the static, and then stop and go, hello, 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 and and that went on for about six hours a day while we we're meditating, and I think that was probably the most difficult thing I ever had to sit with during meditation. <laughs> Can you understand why? The repetition of that kind of a, of a sound, and, and maybe it was better it was in Tibetan, and we didn't know what they were saying, but uh, it, this, it just goes on and on like this in India. There, there's no sense of having, being able to meditate in silence. There is no silence in India. And so we have a very, very different kind of uh, experience here in the West, and we get very, very spoiled as well about what we expect from our uh, retreats. So uh, I just would like to invite you maybe at some point to try your retreat in a different kind of environment and see what comes up for you, (laughs) see what kind of mind states you're working with. So the very first year I was in India, uh, when I was teaching, uh, Christopher wanted me to do questions and answers in the hall. And I'd been in India for about 10 days. And one of the questions that somebody asked was, how do you deal with all the suffering that's here? And I realized that I had absolutely no idea. But of course, at that time, I didn't want to let them know that I had no idea, because I was still in some kind of idea that I should have known. So I gave some kind of answer. And uh, later, Christopher said to me, you did really well with the questions and answers. But the one on the suffering in India, you need a little bit more time in India. And it was really a, I think, where my, most of my lessons about compassion and equanimity arose for me were over those years there. Because I realized that I had very little capacity to open my heart to what I was experiencing. And at the time, also, it didn't seem like I had much compassion to turn towards myself. And so a lot of times I was very much caught in deep pain and deep confusion about what I was experiencing. I wanted to be Kuan Yin. I wanted to be able to open my heart and maybe at least myself, but it was just too much. It was just just too much. The very, I remember just before I left, the very first time I was there, I was lying in a hotel uh, bed in, um, in Varanasi, uh, right next to a temple. And it was nighttime, about 11 o'clock at night, and the temple bells were going at 11 o'clock at night and ringing very loud right outside my room and ringing and ringing and ringing. And all I could feel was so much hate. I hated being in India. I didn't want to be in India. I never wanted to come back to India. It was just the most intrusive experience I ever had. And it was much, much later that I realized that what the hate really was, was I was hating myself because I couldn't open, because I couldn't feel more compassion, because I couldn't feel more love for my limitation, for my predicament. And so all that got turned inward. 
when we walk the spiritual path, we're going to be looked, we're going to be asked to look at every place that we're holding. Every place, every way that we identify with a sense of me. Me being separate, me being isolated, me being cut off from other things of this world. Every way that we hold on to some false conception of ourselves, which gives us immense amount of pain and suffering. I want to read this poem from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, which I love to read and some of you have heard. And I can never hear it enough. It's called Kindness, from her book Words Under the Words. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So we're asked to look deeply at everything, to stay awake, and to see if we can stay awake with an open heart. So in the beginning, we practice compassion. We practice compassion as one of the foremost qualities that we want to cultivate and develop within our being. And compassion means the practice of acceptance, accepting what's here and now, just as it is. It means the practice of allowing, allowing whatever is arising in any given moment to be there just as it is. It means not judging ourselves, paying attention to how we give ourselves a hard time, so we stop doing that. It means the practice of kindness towards what we see in our mind and in our body, in our experience. And we do that when we develop compassion and we cultivate compassion. We do it from a place 
of knowing that we are already Kuan Yin. That we all and each one of us are the embodiment of that compassion. It is just that we're not able to access that compassion all the time because of these very strong and difficult patterns of mind. So when we call up our compassion, it's not like we're grabbing it out of thin air or we're getting it from the person next to us or you know, we're finding it in some compartment that we haven't been able to ha- find before. It's, it's where do we think that the compassion is coming from when we develop the compassion? It's coming from within our own being because that is who we are. That is the expression of who we are. And Kuan Yin manifests as we let go, as we let go of the expectations, as we let go of the demands, as we let go of our ideas and ideals about who we should be, and we let ourselves be. We let go of the false beliefs and let ourselves be. And as we let go, we begin to touch what is true compassion. For what we are practicing is not yet true compassion. Sokni Rinpoche, one of my teachers, one of my Tibetan teachers, said, true compassion only arises after the realization of emptiness. True compassion only arises after the realization of emptiness. And what he means there by emptiness and what emptiness is, is the realization of selflessness or egolessness. The realization of who you are. And egolessness is is really seeing that we are not a separate, isolated being that is cut off from all things. We recognize the essential nature of who we are. So this this emptiness and compassion is what Ajahn Amaro, one of our, our dear friends, calls the fairy dust in compassion. So it's like dropping fairy dust into our compassion and it truly turns into the great compassion that we are, an expression of our true being. Because otherwise, up until that time, we're constantly confronted with our own desires for the way we want things to be, our demands, our, our wants, our dislikes, our preferences. It's always present, even in compassion. Even when we think that we're really caring and wanting something for somebody, It may be our own personal preference that is getting in the way. It may be our own attachment to the outcome of what we desire. And it may not be the expression, the deep expression of true compassion that arises from emptiness, that arises from selflessness. We could say then that all experience occurs within the perspective of ego or the perspective of self until we see through this fixation, until it's seen through once and for all. So what we think of 
as compassion is often not true compassion. We care about something, but the sense of ourself is so apparent. In fact, what often disguises itself as compassion, and we've often heard this, the mere enemy of compassion, or that which disguises itself as compassion, is what shows up as grief, or sorrow, or self-pity, or righteous, self-righteous anger, where we, we really want something to be the way we want it to be, and life is not giving us what we want. We seem to really care about something, but it is just an expression of our own self-interest. So we look into the ways that our sense of self gets in the way and causes suffering in our lives so that we can know the expression of true compassion in our heart. So we can really know that. Sokni says, after the concept of self dissolves, the expression of that realization manifests as compassion. So the expression of that realization, the expression of our understanding of what's true, expresses itself as compassion. Because then we cannot, we can no longer turn away from suffering. The suffering that we see with a thousand arms, a thousand hands. And I'm not talking about a sense of self that dissolves once and for all and that's it, and we never that sense of self never comes back again. Because some of you might be thinking, well, that's it, you know, I'm never gonna feel real compassion then because, you know, I don't know what emptiness is and I don't know what selflessness is and it's going to be, you know, how many lifetimes before I understand that? And that isn't really what I'm talking about. It's not actually that black and white. Because there's many, many moments when the sense of yourself is not so strong. I remember in my early years of practice when I really felt pretty calm and centered and balanced and there wasn't a lot of that you know, difficulty or negativity entering. I wasn't that agitated. I would just feel very peaceful and at ease. But I always had a sense that, well, even so, there must be some really core, solid sense of myself there, you know, somewhere inside, some kind of steel rod or something that was me. You know, it, it just because it feels pretty empty and I feel pretty spacious right now, this probably isn't it. But then I kept looking for that idea of myself, and I couldn't actually find it at those times. Things seemed pretty spacious and fairly clear. So I think what what is really important to reflect on is that we have moments of freedom. Moments of real freedom where we're not, where the sense of ourself is not so solid, where we don't have so much of a sense of separateness and a way we feel so isolated or cut, or cut off. But there are moments when the suffering is not there. And what the Buddha taught was the realization of the absence of suffering. It's when the suffering goes away. And in those moments, we're not wanting, we're not judging, 
We're not defending. We're not rejecting. We're not comparing. There's a stillness. There's a calm. There's freedom. There's very little sense of me, very little sense of self. Our mind is quietly at home, minding its own business. And these are moments of freedom. These are moments that really need to be recognized for what they are. Because it's these moments that there's an opportunity for the qualities of our innate nature to shine through. There are moments when an expression of our true being, of our compassion, of our wisdom can shine through at those moments. So we really want to recognize those moments of ease, those moments of calm. And in those moments of freedom, it really allows for a deep connection with all things. In those moments, something shifts. Our mind is quiet. We feel a sense of spaciousness. We may feel the metta in our heart. We may feel the compassion for all things. Our hearts can be touched And there is an openness to receive what is true in our world. There is the openness, there is some capacity to be able to allow ourselves to be touched by the truth of things. One of my other teachers, Hamid Ali, uh, says, whenever any human being loses his or her point of view of separateness, the entire human race benefits. All the work we do is for the good of everyone, for the earth as a whole. So in this way, our our practice that we do here is very compassionate. It's a very compassionate practice. It's for the welfare of all beings, one and all. Sometimes it can seem like it's a selfish practice, you know, and particularly at the beginning we can be accused of being involved in a selfish practice, you know, it's just for us. But it's not. This is not to enhance our own ego, even though it makes us feel much better, we feel much happier and more at peace. It's truly for the ending of this self-centered ego to bring this fully to an end so we're no longer acting in ways that are harmful and uncompassionate, either to ourselves or to any other being, any creature that lives on this earth. So, how would I answer the question today that I was asked in the Dharma Hall 16 years ago How do you deal with all the suffering that's here? And I think that I have a little bit more insight. I hope that I have, but I feel like I have like a a drop of more insight over 16 years because the suffering is so immense. It's so immense. But the way that I probably would reflect on that question now is I would say, Start where you are. Just dropping into your own present moment experience 
and look to see what your own capacity is to open your heart. Paying attention to the ways that you may set up expectations for it to be different or some kind of ideal for it to be different. Ways that you may judge yourself for the way you are. And really let whatever is there to be there just as it is, to allow your heart to be exactly in the shape, exactly in the formation that it is. That we start where we are. The pain truly comes from the expectation, the wanting, the demanding, the attachment to some ideal about where we should be. And our heart opens when we come into a place of true acceptance with ourselves as we are and with the way things are. Kuan Yin, the thousand hands with eyes touching the world, asking us to stay awake. Stay awake. Keep your eyes open. Be present for what's happening. This is our opportunity to change the world. Let's sit for just a few minutes together. May all beings live with wisdom and compassion in their heart and their mind. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.